Kaz was very intelligent, very straightforward. Like he was just a really no bullshit kind of guy, you know, and which made me trust him and made me feel like, like whatever happened, he would tell it to me straight. He also came across as really, really positive. It wasn't that sort of bullshit woo-woo positivity that you sometimes find in LA, you know? I mean, he wasn't, you know, he didn't meditate. He wasn't religious. He, you know, he was he was just genuinely like um, a can-do sort of glasses half full, stay on the bright side of things kind of guy. We would do things that didn't require a lot of talking, <laughs> which I always found an interesting way of like trying to get to know someone. Um, but like we would go on a bike ride. It was hard for me to imagine him like being the kind of person that falls head over heels and just drops everything and, you know, things go really, really fast. Like he just wasn't that kind of, he was measured, you know, in, in everything. For me in the beginning, it was great, but it was also a little frustrating because our rhythms were different. I wanted to hang out more. <laughs> I wanted to see him more than just on the weekends. <laughs> but uh, you know, he kind of, he he kind of set the pace actually. And so it seemed it seemed to me like it was like it was going slowly, but I guess for him it was going at a normal pace. And you know, we slowly got to know each other. Kaz was an avid motorcycle rider. He had a bike, a really, really nice bike. He watched motorcycle racing, <laughs> which <laughs> we spent a lot of time doing. I knew within a few months that I was falling in love with him. It took a little while longer for him to say it. It was about nine months, eight or nine months after we first started dating when we said we loved each other. That obviously, you know, made things more serious. I wanted to start a life together. I wanted us to be together. He started having headaches and which didn't at first seem alarming. Then he started to have blurry vision. And then one night he woke up asking me if I was shining a light in his face. And at that point I knew something was wrong. That wasn't normal. And it sounded scary and I told him that we, we had to go to the doctor in the morning to get him checked out. At first we thought it was something to do with his eyes. So we went to an optometrist and uh, he said nothing was wrong with your eyes so it might be neurological and you should go get an MRI immediately. And he suggested that we go across the street to the hospital across the street. And um, we found out after the MRI, the doctor came in and said, well, we see a growth in your brain. 
and so you're going to be admitted and doctors will come see you soon and we'll find, we'll talk about what this means so i drove back to la um and i picked up he gave me a list of things to grab He wanted me to get some movies and bring my laptop so we could watch movies in the hospital. And he wanted only comedies. So I grabbed his favorite film, Shaun of the Dead, and Blazing Saddles. We watched Blazing Saddles that night. What the hell is this? This is the bill that will convert the state hospital to the insane into the William J. Lepetamine Memorial Gambling Casino for the insane. Gentlemen, this is this bill. I remember saying to him at one point, uh, asking him, I said, is it wrong that this feels romantic? <laughs> and he said, no, I know what you mean. And I don't know how to describe it exactly, except that it felt, you know, we were in that hospital room alone uh, with the lights out and we were both sort of snuggled in his hospital bed and we were watching Blazing Saddles on my computer and and it kind of felt like it was us against the world, you know, like we were going through this thing. We were going through this something. And it was big. I guess there are different types of brain tumors. And uh, geoblastoma is one of the most aggressive, meaning it grows quickly. And what makes these tumors really dangerous is that they grow quicker than, w than what doctors can do to stop them. So, and they, they affect the brain. They affect the brain, which affects everything else. And they can also spread. They can spread down the spine to other areas. <laughs> you know, the, the irony of, of this whole thing of, of Kaz getting cancer and the tumor and everything was that, you know, it sped things up. And sometimes I thought, I would think to myself, well, you know, how bittersweet that I sort of got what I wanted in a way, but I got it in a way that I, I would never have, I would never have chosen. So we came home from the hospital and we were getting ready to go out to dinner and have, and dinner and a movie. He said, um, I've been thinking about popping the question anyway before all this happened. But now it seems like the right time, and if you, if you'll, if you'll have me, will you marry me? If you know, if you'll still have me, and I said yes. I was scared. I mean, to be honest, I was scared. I was scared of getting married. He wasn't the kind of guy that, to make rash decisions. And, and it seemed so uh, unplanned, and that wasn't like him. 
when he got out of surgery, um, the next step was uh, meeting his oncologist and Dr. Rudnick. And that was the first time that we actually heard that it was a GBM, it was stage four, it was terminal, and worst case scenario, he had a, a one to two years to live. In the next few months, uh, we moved in together. He also started radiation and chemo. And after um, he did the radiation and chemo, the MRI showed that the tumor hadn't, it hadn't shrunk, it had just stopped growing. It seemed like any treatment that we did pretty much just paused the tumor he started to have those headaches again. And then that led to another MRI, which showed that the tumor had grown and the doctors were like, we have to get in there again and take it out. November 16th, 2010, he had a motorcycle accident. He was riding on his way to um, the hospital, actually, to get some blood work done. A couple hours later, I got a call at work saying that he was um, at the hospital and and I left my work, went over to Cedars and and he was pretty messed up. And so when he left the hospital after three weeks of rehabilitation, physical rehab, um, he was in a wheelchair. He would no longer be able to ride. you know, so he came back from the hospital after that accident a completely different person than before the accident. After that, he really seemed sick. It, brain cancer can be somewhat um, deceptive that way. Mm. You know, it's not like s some other types of cancers where you see physical indicators that the person is sick necessarily. He was still going out, he was still drinking beer, he was still able to socialize, he was still driving, riding his motorcycle, you know, he, so in many ways he, it's, life seemed still pretty normal. I think even worse than getting the cancer was the fact that he couldn't ride the motorcycle anymore because that took away the one thing that he enjoyed, the one escape that he had. And so it made him confront the reality that he was going to die. There was a whole team of people trying to keep him motivated and sort of put him back together, you know, and, and keep him from giving up. Kaz, his depression continued and got worse. And I, I just, I started to get even more and more like desperate, you know, you're, you're seeing a tidal wave coming and you're just trying to think, how can I keep it at bay for as long as possible? One day in late March, 2011, I came home uh, to find Kaz fully dressed and waiting on the couch 
which surprised me because I had expected him to be, um, he had an appointment that day, but I thought he would be in bed until sort of the last minute. And he was um, shivering and, you know, I could tell right away that something was wrong and he was having seizures, um, really powerful seizures that made him stop talking. And I asked a friend to come over and uh, we drove him to the hospital and he was then unconscious for like about maybe 36 hours while the doctors tried to get his brain to stop seizing. And eventually Kaz did wake up and they did get him to stop seizing. Um, but he was on a lot of a lot of medication at that point. But he f slowly came to, you know, at first he could only say a couple of words. At one point, when all the doctors were in the room, he asked, so when are you going to be Mrs. Smith? <laughs> at that point, I didn't care about anything else. I just wanted to get married. And he slowly improved to the point where they said that he could go home on hospice, which was where we were at at that point, was hospice, not any more treatment. If anyone has ever been sick or dealt with someone who's sick, when you hear the word hospice, you think, oh my God, you know, because usually hospice means the person is going to die, and they're going to die soon. And hospice is uh, the opposite of everything that you've been doing up until that point, because it's you sever ties, basically, with the hospital. He developed uh, a urinary tract infection and had a really high fever. And I talked to Dr. Rudnick, and I said to him, well, you know, I know he has a fever, and and... I know it's really precarious. I told him, you know, because I asked Kaz what he wanted to do, and he said he wanted to die at home. So, so that's what we did. And I told, I told, uh, I told Dr. Rudnick, and I said, "Can can you help us get home?" Once we got home, we got married. <laughs> I mean, it was really funny, actually, when we got home and Kaz was, you know, we're hanging out in the bed and we're looking at rings. We chose the rings. We sent out the invitations, you know, saying, we're getting married tomorrow. <laughs> so anyone who can come, please come. And it was really special. It was really special, actually, and it was bittersweet. You know, there were a lot of tears at the wedding, but people were glad to see him. A lot of people, that was the last time they saw him was that day. You know, and he was, he was happy. He was dressed up. He was um, looking really handsome, and it was outside in a beautiful setting on the um, veranda surrounding the observatory in LA which is high in the high above the Hollywood Hills 
you know, and it was at sunset, and it was really, really beautiful. And then after that, he lasted about 11 days after that, before he died. But he died a married man. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever get married again. I don't know if I will. And I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to marry him. I feel like he was an extremely special person. And what an honor it was and is to have been his wife. You've been listening to Arrivals. A very special thanks to Neva Durrell-Smith. I asked Neva how our listeners could honor the memory of her husband, and she said by listening to his favorite band, Clutch, by rooting for the Steelers and the Redskins, and by always looking out for motorcyclists when you're on the road. It turns out that while Kaz was alive, Neva had only been a passenger on a motorcycle, and that after his death, she decided to learn to ride herself so she could celebrate Kaz by doing the thing that he loved to do the most. You can follow Neva's journey by visiting her at ridingbitchblog.com or through the links on our website, ARRVLS.com. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word. Our own Gabrielle Lewis hosts an occasional show about life in transit called En Route, which you can find there as well. Arrivals is a proud and founding member of The Herd, a new podcast collective featuring six independent producers from all over North America who have banded together to promote one another's work, share resources, and help each other in continuing to make creative, unique, and inspired audio productions. At the heart of the herd is Jacob Lewis, whose idea it was to bring all these incredible producers together. He lives in Nashville and produces Neighbors, the show where next door hits home. Jacob has a new episode coming up that explores the words highbrow and lowbrow, where they come from, what they look like, and the consequences they can have. And he'll answer the question, if you're homeless, what are you supposed to brew your coffee in? You don't get a sock every day on the streets. I mean, so let's be for real on that. Be sure to listen to and subscribe to all of our shows at theherdradio.com. That's H-E-A-R-D radio.com. Arrivals is produced in the silence between the sound of accelerating engines in the lovely East Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York by me, Jonathan Hirsch, along with Gabrielle Lewis and Ben Cruz. Our associate producer is Nora Lind. Thank you for listening. And until we meet again, may you wind up where you need to be.